0: And welcome to another edition of the Goblin Lore Podcast. Today, we are fortunate enough to be joined by senior magic designer and writer, Gavin Verhey. He fell down a volcano once and has some of the best stories for fostering friendships around the globe. Today, we want to discuss the design philosophy of goblins and Magic the Gathering, talk a little bit about the history of goblins, and maybe have Gavin talk about what the gathering and Magic the Gathering means to him. First, we'll start off and introduce ourselves. I am Hobbs Q., I can be found on Twitter at HobbsQ, and my pronouns are he, him. And our question for this episode is to tell us what goblin you would most want to go on vacation with. And I think that because I tend to get annoyed on vacations very easily with other people, I would bring Squee along because then I would not feel bad if I had to just, you know, push him off a cliff or feed him poisoned food because I know he's going to be back and he's not going to hold it against me because he's going to have no clue what just happened.
1: I'm Alex Newman found on twitter at uh, mel underscore chronicler uh, my pronouns are he him and I, my first thought was uh, zada i have a, a commander deck built with her and i really enjoy it and i was thinking you know you throw spells at zada and she bounces them around and that probably means that you know zada brings the party and is would have it'd be a lot of fun and a lot of energy and things and probably enjoy that a lot but probably not for very long uh, i i be pretty introverted and i love hanging out with people but i also really love time on my own so that's when i thought that probably a better match would be zozu um zozu has this whole punishing lance thing likes to stay at home zozu's flavor text on the most recent uh, dual deck printing was does not tolerate intruders i think zozu knows how to like have a staycation and and go go hang out in the mountains with him
2: Hey, everyone. My name is Gavin Verhey. I use he, him. And, you know, I travel a lot. I love to travel. Big fan of traveling. But the big problem I have whenever I travel is that just never enough time to do all the things I want to do. And so I think I'm going to bring along my good pal kiki-jiki mirror breaker so they can create another copy of me and go out and do all the things that i need when i'm traveling and then at the end of the turn it's going to go away so there's like no clone shenanigans i don't have to worry about like you know it's sticking around forever and eventually evil twinning me no 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 it's going to go away it's going to be fine so uh, i'm going to pick kiki-jiki mirror breaker
0: okay so i mean i think the only problem that we're going to have is that says non-legendary permanent and i would say that most of our (laughs) listeners are going to say that gavin is pretty legendary
2: yeah. Hey, I feel like if you think I'm legendary, then uh, I'll just hang out with my Pal Kiki Jiki. If That's a win enough for me if you think that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> at that point, you'll just hang out. Like you don't even need... at that point Kiki's just copying a beer or something.
2: Yeah, look, I mean, he seems like a red dude. Like he's kind of surfing on a board. He's like from Kamigawa. He's got great stories. Yeah. The, the one downside is every hotel you stay in, he shatters the mirror. That's the worst part. <laughs> right. you, when yeah. you wake up in the morning and you like look at the mirror and he's like, oh, nope, Kiki shattered it last night. Yeah. Kiki!
1: Yeah. But, I mean, it, just imagine all the things Kiki-Jiki, you know, like, hey, this is a great steak. Now there's two. Hey, this you know, perfectly
2: cooked hamburger. Yeah, burger. but then you, you eat know, it hamburger. and it's delicious, yeah, but it. it vanishes so you don't get fat from it. You know? There's like all these upsets. <laughs> right.
0: Right. Because like, I think if you even if you've eaten it, at the end of the turn, the calories don't count.
2: That's right. I, get yeah, I, I got a flavor judge ruling on that one.
0: <laughs> Literally flavor judge. <laughs> okay. So... Normally on the show, Gavin, what we would do is we kind of would talk about a specific story uh, example or something from Magic history. We go delve a lot into the actual storyline and the lore of the game. So in the past, we've done profiles on Slow Bad, and we did a profile on Pranko, and we kind of discuss that and then bring it into the real world. Kind of talk about how it affects us, what how basically how we live the game in our real life. For goblins and for this episode today, we're kind of more just wanting to think of goblins as a whole. It, it just what do they mean across the multiverse? Because there are goblins everywhere. Literally everywhere. Yeah,
2: well, I think that's actually one of the best things about goblins. So why, why do you think that is? I mean, so tell me more. Yeah, I think goblins are one of the coolest races out there. And the reason why is they're on almost every plane – Innistrad, maybe a couple others as, as exceptions, but they're almost everywhere. And on every plane, they look a little different. And the really cool thing about this is we get to see them different every single time. So when you look at one across the table, you can almost tell what plane it's from, right? Kamigawa goblins and... Um, Lorwyn goblins and Mirrodin goblins and Dominaria goblins. They all look very different, which I think is very cool. And they have slightly different ways of playing, but on the whole, even despite all the different looks, goblins have a very similar strategy. It's usually about playing a lot of goblins, and then you'll sacrifice them for effects, or um, you might just you know play a tribal lore and pump them all up. So from a design perspective... It's really cool to me that you, uh, throughout time, if you put all the goblins from Magic in one deck, you're going to have a pretty coherent package. So it really lets you build up these fun tribal decks over the course of Magic's history.
0: And they're actually uh, one of the few that we've seen in basically every single color. Uh, this was actually a discussion that was being had on Twitter the other day. Was the fact that you know we have goblins that are across the board. Now we don't have like a mono blue Goblin, which I would actually love to see, but. We do, you know, we have even like the Razorfin, which is our, our the best hybrid of all time, which is Goblin and Merfolk. It, it, but as you were saying, how they look on each plane, you know, even I mean, to me, one of my favorite for look is on Tarkir. The teamur Goblins actually have fur <laughs> because they they're living more in colder zones, and they kind of have learned to adapt to that. And you can by just looking at the art. Even if you look in the logo for our show, that was one of the points of it was. You can identify a goblin basically by what they look like.
1: Yeah. And so I, one of the reasons why I, I really like the tribe, they're found almost everywhere. There's a few exceptions, but there's this great diversity to them. But at the same time, there's this great connection between so many of them.
0: So when it comes to designing for them, you know, what, is, what is kind of the philosophy that goes into that? Because you said
2: they're everywhere.
0: There are similarities. You also want them to feel like their own tribe.
2: Yeah, so a few things that we do to help out here. One, we try and keep them in a pretty normal size band. But what I mean by that is they're the small red race on most planes are goblins, um, or at least one of the small red races. So, you know, 1-1s one and 2-2s, two if you're making a small red creature, it's probably a goblin. Sometimes we will get up to 3-3. Three, three. You, you got, you know, some big, big, beefy goblins. On rare occasions, you might get up to a goblin goon, but that's for like a weird one-off kind of card. And so, as we're making cards, we kind (laughs) of. Yeah, so so as we're making cards, we kind of identify that, hey, these are going to be goblins just in our heads. And maybe the creative will make them goblins, maybe they, they won't. But, you know, we might give them abilities that play into that, like sacrifice effects and so on and so forth. But, you know, once again, because goblins have had a pretty consistent strategic identity throughout Magic's history or at least semi-consistent, it allows us as designers to really point the new ones we make in the right direction. So I,
0: my biggest thing is, cause you know, kind of f- from a base standpoint, do you know when you're designing what, what creature type is most likely going to be given? I mean, are you given, I mean, outside of sets that are specific to tribal, are you kind of given an idea of where this is going to be? Or do you have a really strong idea of when I design this red, rare
2: creature or common creature, I know that it's going to be a goblet. Usually, the answer is no. Uh, usually what happens is we make the cards, we give them goofy playtest names and placeholder creature types, and then we pass it over to creative, and they concept them appropriately. Now, if we make a red creature that sacrifices to do something, eh, at reasonable odds it'll be a goblin, but it could always become an elemental or you know some other small red creature. Um, we, However, if there are cases where we really want it to be a goblin in particular— there are some tricks we can do for this. And one of the things we do, and you all never see this in the real world, but when we name a card, um, or rather on its creature type line, when we add the creature types to a card, We'll put um, exclamation points after the type. So if I write goblin exclamation point on a creature, first of all, whenever you play it, it looks cool because you're like, oh, it's a goblin. It's really telling me it's a goblin. Uh, but it also is a message to creative that, hey, this needs to be a goblin. And then they'll concept it accordingly. Now, if I make something that seems undoable, they're going to come and talk to me about it. Like if I'm like, yeah, this is my 5-5 flying fire-breathing goblin, they're going to be like, Gavin, did you really mean this? What are you doing here? But in general, if I really want a thing to be a goblin, I can control that And sometimes you do. Sometimes you know you're targeting um, a Commander deck or a Legacy deck or even a Standard or, you know, Pioneer deck or whatever you're choosing, and you want to be a Goblin in particular. It doesn't happen a ton, but it happens sometimes. Now, I mean, now
0: designing for a plane that's going to have tribal that you know it's going to be a theme, I'm guessing, is a little bit more, you know, even when we saw with Modern Horizons, let's say, we knew there was going to be Goblins to add that into Modern we were getting some reprints. We were getting that. Do you have any? Do you are you aware of that? When a set like Modern Horizons is coming down,
2: yeah, you can expect lots of exclamation points. Okay, just exclamation points <laughs> everywhere. Um, right? You're playing. You're playing the set. I remember playing Destiny Exelon, and it feels like every card is yelling at you because you get down to the creature type line. It's like dinosaur, pirate, vampire. You know. Um, so. Uh, from a, from a playtesting standpoint, yeah, we, we definitely bake a lot of that in with tribal sets. Um, but with Modern Horizons in particular, yeah, one of our goals was to help amp up goblins in Modern and maybe get it to a point where you could play it as a deck. Um, so we didn't consciously make goblins um, the, and reprint goblins, for that matter, that we thought could have a shot in Modern.
0: Well, you know, thank you for slinging, Lieutenant, because it does make it a lot better.
2: <laughs> Yeah, that card is quite strong.
1: So when when creative does, you know, we're going to new worlds and they're doing different things with goblins,
2: does that impact how you design them mechanically? It can. You know, for example, goblins, there's a few things goblins love. Uh, one of them tends to be shiny things sometimes. Um, I think a great example of this is on Miradin or New Phyrexia, you know, whatever era you want to look into. Uh, the, the goblins there like equipment there's a number of goblins that synergize with equipment except for maybe what's that guy Goblin Grappler who like can't be equipped or something but anyway um, yeah look that one up 2R two, 2 two first first right, strike can't be equipped um, <laughs> poor guy yeah but in general the goblins they're like equipment so you've got things like Goblin Gavalier who looks to have equipment on him and this also plays well with the game design because what do you want to put your equipment on well you're small little creatures that there's tons of running around there right because you could make every one of your tokens this huge lockstone on war hammered 4-1 trampler um, and that, that's just really good for gameplay so different goblins in different places will care about slightly different things absolutely um, you know, some go with a more tokeny vibe some go with a more tribal vibe um, but uh, we, we, we see that reflected sometimes by the flavor of the plane and I think Mirdan is always a good example of this I mean, I think of the fact that we've actually
0: seen them portrayed. They generally have low intelligence. There's a lot of impulsivity. Like you said, shiny things, which then lends to artificing. Now, we've seen, though, some more of kind of the leadership role. Things like Kranko, He's a mob boss. We see him when he's been returned. He's kind of now in charge. He's kind of looting with his group. But these are creatures that, at their base, I think we see. I, I think where we where I'm getting to is when we're talking about the legendary goblins, and how it is different to design a legendary goblin because we there haven't been a ton of them. You know there there is a there is not a huge amount of that, partly because of I think how they are portrayed with the intelligence level and some of those elements. And from a kind of a flavor slash design perspective, how do you approach something like a legendary goblin?
2: presuming and this is how it works most of the time presuming that creative tells us they want to do a legendary goblin and then we go in forth and make it we need to learn about that goblin like why is there one here what is what are they doing what's their deal you know krenko was not really deeply created with a lot of backstory it premiered in m13 and of course it's gone on to be something much larger mm-hmm. but we're like yeah goblin makes more goblins that makes sense um we, we can do that and then i think creative kind of concepted the card from there um, but in the case of something that comes a little more um, like, let's imagine if today I was working on some set creative said hey you, you need to do a goblin uh, a legendary goblin I would first ask okay what makes this legendary goblin different like why what are they are they doing here you know are they um, Obviously, there aren't any on Theros, but is it the one Greek goblin? What is the one Greek goblin doing on Theros? Are they um, are they a teacher on Ravnica, right? Are they teaching people things? Like, what is this goblin doing? Um, if it's simply a bashy, bashy, smashy goblin, well, sure, that's something we can make, and we've made a bunch of those in the past, but if it is something different, then we should make sure to reflect that, right? If it's a goblin that reads a bunch of books, then it should care about learning, but just in a very goblin-y way. You know, maybe it uses that red impulsive draw mechanic where you exile the top card of your library. Um, The other thing to think about is when it comes to legendary goblins, the place you're going to see legendary goblins show up the most is probably Commander. And so we need to compare it to the other legendary goblins we've made. For example, if we were to make another red legendary goblin that cares about... um, Tokens are making a lot of goblins. It would have to compete with Krenko, so either we would need to make it something that is better than Krenko, or something that is very different from Krenko. Um, so and we and I don't think we want to make something better than Krenko. So we'd have to look at a very different angle. You know, a different mana cost, a different kind of ability. It looks it does something different with uh with goblins. Maybe sacrifices them. Um, so. We we would want to avoid commanders that are popular because we either have to make it better, in which case, wow, we DC'd someone's commander and we, our card is really strong, or we make it worse, in which case it doesn't hit at all. And those aren't really our goals. Um, so there's a lot to think about with the Legendary Goblins. I think that's one of the things that kind of happened for
0: me when I saw uh, Gurm Goalie. I got really excited about this idea of another, uh, you know, giving us a, a card color card combination that I kind of that cared more about that. But then it's kind of trying to figure out, well, There's not really a ton of green goblins, so then what am I doing with the the green in there that's going to make it still flavorful? How does it still stay on flavor? Because, yeah, that was kind of a cool effect for a goblin, but it didn't affect just other goblins. It was basically all non-humans, and I think that kind of gets into the playability
2: over a lore or flavor perspective. Mm-hmm. Right. If it was simply adding a counter to all of your goblins, it would be a very different card. But the fact that it hits your non-humans makes it really nice to be able to build a variety of decks around it. You could even build a red-green goblin deck, you know, something that features a bunch of the Shadowmoor goblins, and then um, have some just non-humans in there as well. You can synergize with them.
1: Yeah, not knowing a lot from... Sorry, Jeff, not knowing that from the Eldraine story, when I first saw Grimgully, I really l- liked it as an, uh, a goblin who works with other things, and, like, goblins are, are a species that's just about everywhere, but they generally, like, some of, of the different tribes are very about themselves, especially when you have, like, tribal sets, and you, you need to have bonuses for that tribe to build that deck, but I like the idea of a goblin who is about... Other things working together. And that's kind of what I see in Grumgully. Especially the name, then, when they name it Grumgully the Generous.
2: So generous. What yeah. a generous goblin. Well, can we agree it's probably the word for most generous goblin? Oh, probably. Who is the second
1: most generous goblin? I mean, I want to say Ib Halfheart, but I don't think that's right. Maybe Mizzix? I mean, Vile Smasher likes to
2: share. Fire. Yeah, have a vial, have a <laughs> vial. Why the fact they explode, not my fault. The dockside ex- extortionist, the guy that gives you a bunch of gold. Oh. that guy might be that guy might have some gold to spare. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe not though. He's maybe he's not that generous. Who knows? Sh- sharpshooter loves sharing the shots, <laughs> let me tell you that much.
0: Vial Smasher does partner, so you know at least Vial Smasher is billing willing to relationships and open.
2: Oh, Wart. Definitely
1: Wart. Oh yeah. Well which which wart are we talking about here? You know, not oddly you enough I'm thinking Boggart Auntie again I don't know the story from lauren that's that was when I took a big break from the game, but the you know raid mother seems much more like aggressive we're gonna go we're gonna go attack somebody but but you look at uh boggart auntie, she's bringing goblins cards back, the flavor text talks about knowing which berries to lick and which kithkin to kick, and, you know and what you kinda do and working with the goblin community,
2: yeah, you're building a better place.
0: Well, th- this is something that we've, you know, we we joke a lot on Twitter. That's what we do about just anything goblin-related at all. And one of the things that has come up is this idea of better representation of goblins in magic. Just this idea that those of us that love goblins, I think, really love goblins and do feel like it's the, it's, it's the tribe that is always good but never as great. You know, it's not going to have the moment that elves are going to have. And we don't have as many of the legendaries with as strong ties to lore and to, you know, that we get the deep storylines in. I mean, one of my—one of the things I was a little sad about when we came back to Dominaria was we get a card for Squee that that was designed in, but no lore attached to Squee. And to me, that kind of gets back to this whole idea that he's just been chilling on Dominaria for, like, this entire time and is who knows how old— and we never get to see what he's been up to, which was a bummer for me because you know I'm just like, wow, he's got to have some amazing stories. Like, he can't die; he's still here, and all of his friends just came back, that or at least people that he knew are it, he, there.
2: He keeps um, dying on vacation, though. Apparently, so <laughs> it's kind of a rough beat. There's like this jerk who just keeps killing him on vacation. <laughs> does not really get a lot of time for other stuff.
0: But I mean, you know, so like, it's it, it is something that is kind of a, you know, how do you get that representation in for a, a creature type that is not known for having rich storylines?
2: Um. Yeah, that's that's very interesting, and it is tricky, right? Because goblins, in many ways, traditionally in Magic, have kind of been the humor, the the com- the comedy relief, yeah. right? Um, they're not known for having a rich storyline. Even Squee, that you know, maybe the most famous goblin of them all it was kind of just the comic relief in the Weatherlight storyline that of course crew to be right. very popular not like a C-3PO kind of character
0: and like like in some way we believe instrumental to them actually succeeding but yes it's more of a accidental
1: yeah, yeah I, I like to say Squee's superpowers being underestimated because there are several instances in the story where the villains just assume that he's he's a bumbling person who can't get anything done and while he does bumble he certainly gets some stuff done
2: no, I think there's room for goblins that do – I think Krenko – like if we were to flesh Krenko out, that could be a really great example, right? If someone is running a bunch of mechanations under the scenes, who is the the smart goblin or the the person who is running the smart goblin um, brigade, uh, there is a ton of room for stuff like that. You haven't quite seen it yet, but I think there's totally a place for that in magic. And like anything – it's important to have the contrast because all the comedy relief doesn't mean nearly as much without having the the serious goblin on the other side somewhere, right? So it's a balance. And you're, you're right. We should try to make some more serious goblins. So I'll uh, look forward to some future sets to see what I can do. Okay. Yeah, we, we, we'd appreciate it, you know?
0: <laughs> I mean because the ones that – we think that the ones that do have that storylines are – I mean we one of the episodes that we've done as a profile was Slowbad and who is just a very tragic – beautiful character in some ways because he's almost he's an outcast among outcasts i mean he's basically been living alone and is very intelligent for his race and and kind of has to learn even the concept of friendship
1: yeah and i think that's why we do we try to do our goblin profiles we want to talk about some of those stories that we really like and those characters
2: yeah, Slowbad's character, I think, is, is cool. Actually, I enjoyed the Mirrodin story. I thought it was really fun to get to see Glissa and Slowbad kind of team up. And, yeah, I mean, it's, it's quirky, you know, but um, there's a lot of neat stuff going on there.
0: It's a buddy cop movie. I mean, that unfortunately then the Phyrexians just come in and unceremoniously kill Slowbad.
2: Well, that, yes, that's a different story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so, Gavin, you know, moving away from just specific goblins in general, I, I would love to hear a little bit more about what brought you – to design i mean you you were a player i mean that's that's kind of how i remember first hearing about you or seeing anything about you
2: yeah i mean you know it's funny i've been at wizards over eight years now it's wild to say that eight years is a long time to be doing anything Mm -hmm. Um, i've been at wizards over eight years now and before that i did pro play and uh, before that i was just a kid who liked playing magic. And, you know, I started playing magic when I was 10 years old. And then when I was 11, I decided I wanted to come work to Wizards and go work on magic, which is so delightful to me. I mean, I, I love that I get to do this now. And what actually happened is, and if you've listened to my podcast, you might have heard this story before, but please, please indulge me, um, which is when I was 11, I lived in Seattle, and uh, as I currently do as well. And <laughs> I went to... Although it doesn't seem like it with how much I travel. But anyway, that's another story. Um, and I was at a local pre-release. And at the time, Wizards employees would just come and hang out at pre-releases to see what people were doing. You know, we had the one big pre-release back then. So it was kind of a place to see everybody. Yeah. And um, Randy Bueller was there, who was leading R&D at the time. And I walked up to Randy. I was 11 years old. I walked up to Randy. And I said, hey, I'm ready for a job. Like, how do I, how do I come on in? And... Uh, <laughs> He looks at me, he's really serious, and he's like, okay, kid, you're going to need two things. The first thing you're going to need is a college degree. And my heart just sinks, right? I'm like, I'm like, I'm 11, it's going to take forever to get there. Like, you know, who knows how many years that's going to be? Um, But the second thing he says is you should be a really good magic player because we like hiring people who are really good at the game. And that just totally stuck with me. And, of course, I thought, I don't know about this whole college degree thing, but how hard could being a pro magic player possibly be? It's got to be easy, right? Yeah. Um, turns out, yeah, it's actually a little a little tricky. But from that moment forward, I dedicated myself to those two things. And um, when I was uh, 15, I started college. When I was 16, I qualified for my first pro tour. Um, I used my magic career to pay for college. And then when I graduated at 20, um, I turned my sights to getting this job at Wizards. I was like, okay, I followed these, these instructions. What do I do next? And then I created this format called Overextended, which basically would become modern. Um, it's a roundabout way of becoming modern. Um, Wizards, Wizards was working on their own thing at the time, modern. I didn't know that. And uh, they used the results from Overextended to help inform changing um, and adding the modern format. And then shortly after that, I was contacted and um, I took a test and did some interviews, and I was hired. And that was back in uh, 2011. So, yeah, pretty pretty nuts.
0: I mean, were you always was design where you wanted to be? I mean, when you were 11, is that... You, yep. you knew you wanted to work for Wizards. Did you know it was in design? I wanted to go work on magic design.
2: Yep, I wanted to go work with Rosewater, and now he sits you know, within walking distance of me, so that's pretty wild. I played him in a game of magic today. <laughs> Please tell me you won. I, you know, I've got a very good lifetime record against Mark, but uh, not today, unfortunately. You know, one of the funny things about playtesting is sometimes there are cards that are ridiculous that you have to play against. And today, Mark had a ridiculous card. Um, and I'm not gonna blame it only on that. His deck was sweet, he, he drafted a really sweet deck. When the set that we were drafting comes out, I think players really like drafting this kind of deck. But he also had a specific rare That crushed me two games in a row, and that was not very enjoyable, but we're probably going to change the rare, and that's why we play test.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's what I was just going to say. I was like, and obviously, since it beat you, it needs to be nerfed.
2: Yeah, well, we'll see what happens. My deck was also on the weak side, and you know, an interesting thing about working on game design is you have to adopt a different mindset, and it takes a while. It took me a long time to get into this mindset. When you are a player, and you're playing a game of Magic normally, you're usually thinking, how am I going to win? Right? You're like looking at the cards in your hand, looking at the board. You're like, how am I going to win? What, maybe, What is my opponent thinking? What how, what are they going to use against me? A little a bit of bluffing, whatever. When you're a designer of magic, you don't think about those things nearly as much. Not, They're far, far, far below the surface. You're like, am I having fun right now? What cards are causing problems? If this card costs one more mana or one fewer mana, what impact would that have on the game? Should this be a 3-2 or a 3-3? Three, three? Like you're just thinking about all these different things, right? And um so when we play test it's not really about winning or losing we don't even really track who won or lost you play against someone in a draft that has the same record as you but we don't track it afterward um but we do want to make sure that uh we we change any cards that we need to and uh yeah there might be some some changes on the horizon for cards in mark's deck <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not May, yeah, maybe maybe everyone thinks it was sweet probably talking Who's stuff that said? we'll
0: see in like 4 years
2: yeah you'll see it in let's see what year is it now. Um, you'll see it in like two and a half years, I think something like that. okay the um what year is it now? That's a question I have to ask myself more often than I would prefer to. Um, yeah. I remember it was about three years ago, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. it was like three years ago and it was um, December, like November or December and i was I had some time and I got to do something very rare, which was clean my house. So I was cleaning my house, and I was very, very happy I was doing this. And I was in my fridge, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this hummus has expired, and oh, my gosh, this has expired. And I just keep throwing things out of my fridge. I'm like, I have all this expired food. I cannot believe I have all this expired food. And then only after I throw everything out do I realize, oh, no, it's just a year earlier than I thought it was. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that, that's a thing oh. that happens. Yeah. <laughs>
1: very 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 small version of that with with recording podcasts that was i think uh, mark roswater talks about that a little bit on his cast about like living in a different time that you're working in and and you know our our casts are not nearly the same time length but there's times where we'll record an episode and then we'll move on to the next thing and we're working on something else then an episode comes out and where i have to remember when i'm talking to people about what has come out yet and what we haven't released and especially when we start to build a backlog and and I get just this little time Im- image of, of what it must be like. And
2: the, the the weirdest part is it's not even like a traditional time travel story. You know, you watch like doctor who or any most time travel movies or anything. And what you're seeing on screen is like, they travel forward or backward in time. And they're stuck in a scenario for an episode or a movie or whatever. And, and that's the situation Right, you watch back to the future and they're like hanging out in you know, the 1950s or, or whatever. Um, with what I do, I have to keep track of like eight different realities in my head at the same time because I'm doing stuff for all of them. It's like, okay, I'm working on this set, which means that this has come out, and this is in the future, which means that if we do this card here, it's going to impact these sets in this way. And then you will walk, you'll leave that meeting, go to another meeting about a set that's too further down the line, and you should be thinking about totally different variables. Um, and so, yeah, my head is just eating up space of all these different realities I have to live in. And then when I go and talk to the public – I like on this very podcast it's crucial I know everything that we've said and everything we haven't said so I can be like oh I know about this thing that just happened I am very smart I know about Theros but also I don't accidentally (laughs) spoil that you know we're doing Homelands 2 or whatever so it's a a real it's a real wild job it's truly nothing I've ever experienced like it and I love it though it's an amazing job I love working here working with brilliant people
1: yeah I don't know I I mean I've drafted Homelands just it was, it was an experience. I drafted
2: um, Ice Age Alliance's Cold Snap once. And um, the Cold Snap cards were just so much better than everything else. You played almost all your Cold Snap cards. And there were <laughs> so few playables that my deck had 20 lands and contained the card Burnout, which is 1R <laughs> <one> instant, <laughs> counter target uh, instant. If it is blue, draw a card. Or And the reason I Or sorry Counter target spell If it is a blue instant Draw a card next turn's upkeep And I played that Not because I expected To counter many blue instants But just so that When my opponent cast a spell I would just slam it down On the table Because it's an if It's an if condition So you don't actually Have to target a blue instant So I would be able To draw a card next turn I just <laughs> wanted Two mana <laughs> bad cycling card In my deck That was my, my yeah, whole thing Yeah So Yeah Yeah You, you struggle for playables In those sets well, That's all I'm saying
1: Yeah I, I once did a Ice Age Cold Snap sealed deck uh, at, I think it was GP Orlando, and and um, I, I ended up running Malachite Talisman, Artifact from Ice Age. For three mana, you can untap a permanent after only after you've cast a green spell. Now, part of that was because christopher rush was at that event and that was a christopher rush card and he was my favorite artist back when i started playing magic and revised so i got that signed by him and stuck in my deck in between rounds but yeah that card actually did play <laughs>
2: oh, rest in peace chris
1: um i'd like to ask a uh, kind of go in a little different direction um so you worked on some of my like, favorite multiplayer sets, and as someone who my very first experience of Magic was six of us sitting with Revised Starters playing a giant group game. Kind of. I, what's your history with like group Magic and some of the different things that involve there?
2: Group Magic, yeah. So it's actually very interesting because as I mentioned earlier, I was a pro player, right? I was pro, and then I, um, I came to Wizards. And I was not a multiplayer person remotely. Um, I played like a few Highlander-style formats, you know, singleton uh, with weird rules, but they're all one-on-one competitive. And for the first couple of years of my Wizards career, I just remained that competitive guy. I mean, I was hired for what would now be called play design, right? I was hired to come in and like balance sets. So Commander and, you know, Conspiracy or a giant or whatever was so far off my radar. Um, but as a designer, I was Offered to be well. First of all, I was on. I was put on the conspiracy team, and this is where I got my first taste for it a little bit. And um, no one really knew what to expect, and it was actually very different because at the time we'd never done anything even close to conspiracy before. We weren't doing really anything besides commander we'd never done a casual multiplayer booster set and no one really knew what it was and playing conspiracy was believing right you would tell someone what it was and no one wanted to play test and you would bring them in for a play test and they would want to be like where can i sign up to do this again and you'd see this like almost cult-like conversion happen over the course of many months where people were slowly getting indoctrinated into the cult of conspiracy and um getting more and more interested in playing it so that's where it kind of started and then next up um I had led uh, this archenemy Nicol Bolas product, which was it had multiplayer in it. But you know, I was kind of, you know, I was just doing it, and it was what I was handed. And I mean, I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed making the schemes, but I wasn't a multiplayer at And my boss asked me if I wanted to try my hand at Commander 2017, and I kind of paused. I was like, I don't really know. I'm not really a Commander guy. Commander's not my format. Um, I don't play Commander. I don't have affinity for Commander. I don't even really like Commander. You know, why, why, do I, why would I do this? And I, I said, hey, give me some time to think about it. And he said, okay, think about it. And hell, interestingly enough, over that weekend, I was flying to New York. And one of the things I do whenever I travel is I try and go to a game store. And so I walked into this little game store in New York called The Uncommons. It's a great little store. It's like a small cafe um, and a gaming store. And the new Commander decks had just launched, or relatively recently anyway, and i just went into the back where there's some magic players playing, and there are these four gentlemen who had just purchased commander decks and they were sitting down, getting ready to play, and they, they recognized me and they're like, Hey, do you wanna do you wanna play with us? And I said, sure. And so I went and bought a new deck off the shelf and played. And we had a really great game. And I was like, you know what, this is pretty fun actually. Like, you know, we're playing our commanders and we our decks have these fun themes and these pre seem pretty cool. I think I could roll at this. So I get back in the office on Monday i let gottlieb know that my boss uh gottlieb mark gottlieb know that i'm interested in taking the position or taking the role and then once i start sign on for designing commander 2017 i just lean into it i do all this research i start going out and playing games at local stores i do all this stuff and um until eventually you know flash forward many years now i've been on a ton of commander projects these are kind of my bread and butter these days is what i work on the most and um, I'm totally fishing out of the format, right? I champion it. It's, I think it's amazing. I love what it does for the community. I build decks. I play a lot. And it just goes to show that I think anybody can become any kind of player if you try it out, right? Like there's a lot. Of, there's also a lot of commander players that I think would enjoy competitive play too, if if they just gave it a try. So it, it cuts both ways. And I'm still happy to go and play competitively when I can. I mean, I, I can't play in Pro Tours or Players Tours um, or Grand Prix or anything anymore, but. I mean, I get into like a, a side draft or a cube draft or something that I really care about if I'm playing in a side event. I, oh, I I will try and beat you, and I just, you know, not to pat myself on the back too much, but I keep a pretty good win record. My, my spell-slinging rate is – I don't lose many matches. Uh, normally, I expect to lose about 10% of the matches I play um, when I'm spell-slinging people, which is pretty, say, pretty I've seen, yeah. I,
0: I remember seeing you in, in Vegas a couple of years ago and just coming up and talking to you about how you were doing, and that, that was that kind of tracks with – you, you know, you're still bringing decks. You're actually bringing, in my experience, fun, quirky decks, but they're strong. You know, you're still playing to win,
2: right? Uh, but when I but that, I'm also happy to be able to turn that off and sit down, play a game of Commander. I'll pull out my goofy rat deck, my rat colony deck, or something, and uh, you know we'll have a we'll have a fun time playing.
0: I was gonna say, I was wondering, so what type of a player do you? Th- you know, can you give us an idea of some of the decks are that you're playing in Commander?
2: Yeah, so if you were to look at my psychographic under um, Mark Rosewater's Timmy Johnny Spike model, mm-hmm. um, I would be a Timmy slash Tammy. Or sorry, excuse me. I would not be. I would. I would not be a Timmy slash Tammy. I would be a Johnny slash Jenny and a Spike. Um, uh, because I had that bit of background, I like to win. I like playing to win, but I love combos. I love doing goofy stuff. I love building off the wall things and finding those synergies. I'm the guy that played Turbo Fog a bunch, right? For a while, they had to keep adding damage prevention clauses to cards like Skullcrack and Wild Slash because I kept building Turbo Fog decks. So, um, <laughs> so that's totally my speed. And uh, for the commander decks, I play the most. You know, the, my, the deck that I'm pretty well known for that I play a lot is Mariki Rabaret. It's this uh, oh, yeah. three color card from. Ice Age, and um, yeah, my very first commander deck actually. But I've you know I've, I've got all kinds of stuff, and I'm always working on playtesting new stuff too. Okay, yeah, this, that Marike was my very first,
0: and in, in, in part because um, I was fortunate in what my first pre-release ever was, um, Time Spiral, and I had not wow. had spoiled well, what about a wild set to start with Purple Rarity, and opened up my first pack in in my well actually my tournament pack and had a Marike in it, and you know, proceeded to be very confused getting to see these old borders that I really loved. And so when it came time to actually build a commander deck, once that format kind of started taking off, I still had a Marike's lying around and it was just kind of like, well, everybody's got nicer cards than I do. I'm just going to steal their cards. And it's a new format. I mean, it wasn't, you know, we weren't, we, we were still figuring out what commander even was at EDH at that point. And Marike did very well because people would play out their commander and I would be
2: like, I'll take it i will kill you with it yeah that's what i actually love about playing that commander is it's just it's you don't ever have to tap her to be that threatening too you're just like i'll play her who's gonna attack me is it you i'll take it is it you i'll take it and um you know it's uh it's nice i don't even have like thousand year elixir or any i don't have a single untap effect in the whole deck it's just a way to dissuade people from attacking me while i get to you know go forth and build up my mana and such
1: that was uh that was actually a deck my dad played back in the day because I, I started playing Magic when a, a friend, my dad used to play Dungeons and Dragons, and a friend of his who he played d d with showed up and literally just handed us decks and said, this is d d in card form, we have to start playing. So my my dad ended up building a, a, a deck similar to that with Mar- Mariki and Preachers and old Man of the Sea and just Control Magics and because you know I was young I was 10, 12 at the time so I didn't have access to as many powerful things so he just decided to build a deck that could take care of whatever was going on and it kind of scaled with what other people were doing in the game and especially when we were playing like 4 or 5 person games But me like I I'm basically everything but a spike my my first deck was Chromat, All Shapeshifters and Charms
2: because I just thought that was an interesting concept
1: and It didn't execute very well, but it was a lot of fun.
2: I thought one of the first competitive, or I'm not going to call it competitive. That's a total lie. I remember one of the first decks I built for myself that I was really proud of was this Chimney Imp combo deck where you would imprint Chimney Imp on a Soul Foundry and then you would make a copy of it every turn and sacrifice it so your opponent got draw locked. Yeah. That's a a deck I built, baby. (laughs) Really, really good stuff. Anyway, uh, enough about Chimney Imp and on to the next question.
0: Well, I mean, I mean, we're we're kind of getting into a little bit of talking about what this this community element to it. You know, you talked about when you travel, and as you joke around, but you, you're known for traveling. I mean, that's you have stories from around the world. You have met players in very odd ways and gone to their houses and ended up making lifelong friendships with them. You also, when you travel, you mentioned that you go to game stores. And I kind of want to just segue into a little bit of talking about how the gathering port magic kind of plays into your world, given that you are in a dual role when you're doing that. You're, you're still trying to be part of it, but you are a designer. You are involved with the game. And how does that work for
2: you? How does that approach your lifestyle, your what you do? I think it's really interesting. You know, A lot of people go to their job, and then they come home from work and there's, those are two separate things, right? And maybe sometimes you're thinking about your job when you're at home or, you know, you have to do a little bit of work from home or something. But for me, at this point in my life, magic and I are just like intrinsically linked, if that makes sense, where my job uh, of working on magic stuff and my personal life are sort of just entwined. And I'm, I'm, always, I'm always magic, Gavin, um, because there's always a chance I might run, run into somebody, and no matter where I am. And uh, I'll be anywhere in the world, and I have had people come up to me and, and talk to me. And it doesn't matter if I'm in a magic store or just in a subway or on a train or, um, you know, at a restaurant. It's happened everywhere.
0: I mean, you, you and I met at uh, uh, the Doctor Who Con in LA. Exactly. Right. And you for like the 50th anniversary. Yeah. And you, we we were in the same panel
2: room. Right. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, absolutely. And so um, it's. Uh, it's just it's a very interesting role to be in and for me the balance comes from kind of embracing it and being like yes i am i love magic and i haven't haven't had any kind of diminished uh, love for this game at all and um, i love going out and going to play i love hanging out with players i love i love all the things that has to do with magic so it's you know it, it kind of just works for me i think for a lot of people this would not work for them i just have a very specific personality that allows them um, allows it to work out i guess
0: I mean, yeah, I mean, seeing you now eight years into your career at Wizards, like you said, it doesn't feel like it's been eight years.
2: No, it's, it's one of those weird things, like like several things in life, I think, where it feels like so long and yet just moments ago. Right. It's it feels like ages. And yet I can still you know remember what I was doing before I was playing um, before I was playing here at Wizards when I was playing competitively. So it's, it's wild. It's a very interesting um, paradigm. When you were paying your rent with Jace the Mind Sculptors. Yeah, when I was you know, playing in, in tournaments to, to try and win prize money and all that good stuff, yeah.
0: With that, I mean, it, it does sound like the the elements that you've kind of leaned into then is then you kind of have – it almost seems like a game design philosophy that approaches to your life is, is it going to be fun? If so, I'm going to do it.
2: Yeah, with, uh, with a note there about um, risks to my life. Um, yeah, yeah. Yes, well yes. – <laughs> And even those are, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I, mean, I, I just feel like, you know, look, I've got this amazing job that I love and I get to work with these amazing people and I've got that part of my life going pretty well. And then I should be able to, um, you know, go and do all the things I've always wanted to do while I still can, you know, I'm still relatively young. I'm not even 30 yet. And, um, no, yeah, I like going out and like doing all this. Cause I know someday I won't be able to, you know, someday I'll have, uh, 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 a wife and a family and all these things and um, it'll be harder to do to do all this stuff just because i'll have a lot of commitments back here and it's not to say that i don't have commitments in seattle right now i've got tons of friends and i'm always trying to do stuff with them and i've got recurring engagements and all that but now it's just like the right time in my life for this kind of adventuring and exploring and you know when i'm 40 or 45 maybe i'll still be doing it um or maybe i'll you know be a be a stay at home uh stay at home body so i it's hard to say um, but I figure it's definitely better to take the, to do it all now and then later be like, well, I had all this extra time than to not do it now and later be like, oh, I don't have time anymore to do all this stuff. So I'm pretty uh, pretty content with how it's going.
0: Well, I mean, in, in building that community at this age and being able to have that, I, I have found, so I am, I am a 40-year-old Magic player who has a one-year-old daughter. I mean, I kind of went the route of getting my PhD, taking a much more time, but part of what I, I even still am involved with this community is because of the relationships i I built them when i was in my 20s and 30s when i had more time to travel or play for the game now you know i don't get to play as much as i do yet this game is still such an important part of my life i mean i talk about it basically daily
2: and i play once a week (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it would not be magic without the gathering, right? And to me, it is so much about all these other people that you would meet along the way. I mean, the friendships I've made are are ins- unbelievable to me. Um, a few weeks ago, me and a bunch of my friends who played in PTQs over 10 years ago got together in a cabin and just played magic all weekend. And it was such a blast to get to hang out with that and relive those times and talk to each other. I have so many friends I've, I've met through magic who are now big parts of my life that I, um, that I do stuff with that's not magic-related all the time. You know, th- this weekend... I'm going out to the Sundance Film Festival, and I'm bringing along some magic players with me. We're, you know, we're going to hang out, just enjoy films for the weekend. So wow. it's, um, it's really amazing all the things that uh, magic has brought into my life. I mean, it's brought friends. It's brought a great sense of of community. It's brought a, a life philosophy, and of course, this amazing game that we all rally behind. This is the reason the
0: game is continuing, right? That it, it isn't just one thing.
2: Yeah, it's like a 100 different games in one. You know, It's got all these elements to it. And whether you like flavor or competitiveness or commander or standard or you just want to cosplay or you just want to make friends through it, no matter what kind of player you are or what you like in a game, there's something there for you.
1: Yeah, this Magic is, and I think i talked about this a bit on the, the cast, but magic taught me how to socialize. Um, I, I have social anxiety. And I, I played it many, many years ago starting and revised and then i I quit for a long period of time and and right when i was diagnosed as gate crash came out and i loved the original ravnica so i came back to magic to start playing and realized pretty quickly that it gave me a great environment to like learn how to talk to people again and just and it gave me this game that has a social aspect but it doesn't put a lot of pressure on the social aspect i can sit down interact with a person If i'm not feeling it i say good game at the end and then i can walk away with no expectations but if we had a good game and i have some energy and we're connecting i can sit and have a conversation with this person and i mean my my current roommate i met because i became a regular player at a a game local game store in minneapolis i started going to commander night every week he and i got to a point where we didn't even play commander anymore we just stand outside the store and chat with whoever was leaving for hours and now he and i are are roommates and it's just you build these relationships in this game and it's it's incredible what is out there
2: yeah magic is great i think we can all agree on that magic is really truly amazing and it's my job to help uh, be a steward of the game to make sure it keeps being great, and that's a that's a very important task that I feel charged with every day. You know, our game is a lot of our job is a lot of fun and games, and you know we make jokes and you know build products and stuff. But in reality, we're doing something that is so important to us. We are making sure that this game that we love continues to persist and do well. And um, I mean, I'm you know happy to say last year was Magic's best year ever, and uh, I think it's going to keep going up from here.
1: So I think um, we've kind of we covered some of the the design and, and things like that. So, Gavin, you know, I think Hobbs we talked about you travel a lot. Uh, do you have some favorite stories that you want to share about interacting with Magic players?
2: Oh, I mean, I've got. I've got so many stories about times I've interacted with magic players. I'll tell you one that happened to me recently just because it's, it's firmly in my head and I always love this story um, or any variation on the story always it makes me smile. But over the new year I was on this Island called Madeira. It's in Portugal or it's off the coast of Portugal rather quite far actually off the coast of Portugal, but it's a Portuguese Island. It's about 25 miles across. So it's very tiny. And I was wandering around the streets of the city and I turn the corner, and there's this game store. It's a tiny little game store, and I, and of course I, I'm like I have to go in. So I go on in, and um, you know they've got a few things on the shelf. They've got some magic packs and a couple other things, and um, perhaps most importantly though, is there's this, uh, there's one customer over in the corner, who um, looks up. And he recognizes me immediately and comes running toward me. Almost like he doesn't believe it. Like, I I watch him, and he looks up at me. He's, like, squinting, and then, like, he's looking at his phone, looking at at me, and looking at his phone, looking at me. And he comes over and talks, and he's a huge fan. And, um, you know, we sit down, we buy some packs of Eldraine, we play um, a Winston draft against each other, and, you know, his day is made, and he tells, it was on New Year's Eve, so, you know, he tells all of his friends, hey, you should have been at the shop, Gavin was there, and, you know, t- 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 took a picture so he would believe it, but to me it's amazing that, you know, even in the furthest reaches of, of this of this earth, on these tiny islands, there's still magic communities. I mean, I was in Malta, too, in, not that long ago, back in November. It's the fifth tiniest country in the world or something. And th- there's a couple magic shops there that run tournaments, and I got to meet the magic scene and play a game of Commander, and it was so, so cool. So this game truly is all over the place, and it just never fails to impress me um, who I'll meet and what stories they'll, they'll tell me.
0: I mean, I mean, it really does come to that point of you, you're saying... Part of why I, I, I've seen you online... Senior fellows, you you like to be that ambassador of the game. You almost kind of, I think, enjoy this role that you've moved into of kind of the 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 face of design. Um, the the most striking example recently was the mystery boosters, and I'm impressed, first of all, at how much you guys kept under wrap with that. I mean, it was just such a fantastic reveal. But then to see how well you I mean, you're known for dressing up in your costumes, and you really do like to be the part of whatever you are doing but to see you dressed up with you know the the shades and the you know the the boosters in a briefcase how i just have to know how you managed to really keep that as under wraps as you did
2: i don't know um i I I mean mean, i'm just based
0: on my history with magic you know and what we know about it
2: yeah i mean it's one of those things where I was basically the one channel that all this information flowed through. So every time I talked to anyone about the set, I'd be like, and it's very important that we don't tell anyone about, you know, anything about this. Right. And it takes a lot because our entire system at Wizards of the Coast is designed to tell people about products they get to play. That's literally, like, you know, we've got entire teams dedicated yeah. to this. So to, t- yeah. so to tell the website people, okay, don't put the cards up on the website ahead of time. And to tell the preview planning team, okay, we don't want to preview any cards. It was a it was a real a real tough thing to do. And I was just sure that at some point something was going to leak, right? I was like, okay, well, you know, as we get closer and closer, some packs are going to get opened or someone's going to see a playtest card or something. But, you know, we, hit, we just live in the one reality where that didn't happen. And we managed to get that pre-release, yeah. and it was amazing. You know, there were over 400 players playing the first pre-release for this event. No one knew what was in it. They were all looking at each other and like sharing cards and laughing. And it was—I've never seen anything like it. And we, frankly, we probably never will see anything ever like it again. It was truly a once-in-a-lifetime experience. So that was really cool. And then the, the set since has been doing game busters like Magic Fest are selling out a product. Um, mm-hmm. Although now we've got, got it a little more under under control, but the there's still. Launching them at a crazy rate, like it's it's nuts how how many people want to play this thing. So I'm very proud of the set, and I hope you all get a chance to play it. And if you can't make it out to a convention, it hits stores on March 13th. So keep that in your mind.
0: Yeah, we're 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 very much hoping. To, I mean, that's the main thing. You know, uh, we've moved away from doing. We've done less it. Convention, So we, in Minneapolis, we've been fortunate the last couple of years to really be getting consistently an event, which we're excited about because there's such a good community here. But we haven't, you know, most of us are commander players or we're side event players or we're queue players. And so we do a lot of things off site. You know, I host a barbecue every year and we set up just have people come. We, we do what we can. This is the thing that would get me to easily say I have to go on the convention center floor and I have to play.
2: Yeah, well, definitely. I'm, if you get I'm the chance, go and check like, it out. Being it it is Twitter, awesome. It is truly awesome.
1: I to say, like, for me, the when the, the the Mystery Roosters thing first came out, it it, it, it really felt like playing back in the day. Because back in 1994, when you when I started playing, like there were no card lists that were public. People didn't know what the whole game was. And so you would just hear stories, and people would be like, well, did you hear about this card? Right? Or you'd play with someone new, and they'd have this card, and I wasn't there playing. I was at work, but just this, the Twitter feel of people posting this card and posting the pictures of the playtest cards. It, it kind of felt like I was back in the day where there was just this, this great, wonderful mystery laid out and we're exploring it as a community.
2: Yeah. I love it. And you know, People still haven't fully mapped it out in the sense that there's no article telling you you should play this archetype or this archetype, right? Like, when you go to a draft, you'll probably see cards you haven't seen. There's a, The most common thing I hear around Magic Fest draft tables is, that's in the set? You know, and um, I, I, we get that a lot, which is really fun. I mean, I'm st- I am I still am
0: trying to pick up a, a bolus card because that that is literally <laughs> seeing myself on a Magic card, and I appreciate that. <laughs> Just <laughs> no end. Glad you feel seen so how I thought I would wrap this up is I did kind of ask a question we actually have not said we usually preface that we're having a guest on and we have not told people that you were coming on the show we are trying to keep that as under wraps as we basically can but I did ask questions about goblins that people want answered and I think a couple of these are ones that are design related and some are just silly so I'm going to throw some out to you real quick alright we
2: are doing rapid fire here we go why isn't goblin king a noble? (laughs) (laughs) that's a great question (laughs) <laughs> um, because Doug Byer has not made Goblin King a noble yet. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, there might be some reason why I don't know the, actually I do, that's when I don't know that's on uh, the creative team.
0: Okay, good. I, I was hoping to get you to say something really controversial and get you in trouble, but we'll, we'll take that. We'll take it.
2: Something you learn when you, when you do a lot of interviews is that sometimes yeah. I don't know is just a totally reasonable answer. Like it's like, if I don't it know, I'm not going to make some, something up to tell you. I just literally yeah. don't know. Yeah. <laughs>
0: what is the main difference between orcs and goblins in magic and i would say that that is a design i mean that is a that is obviously a creative but if you were designing between them what what's the difference
2: you know that that, that's a great question um we don't use orcs that often, so we've only seen them a few times. And of course, it depends on the plane that they're on. But I think traditionally, when I think of the two, I think of goblins as more of like you know to go back to something we were talking about earlier, the more comic relief of them, right? They're they're goofy, they're small, they live in burrows and hang out. Where or the orcs are like the more bloodthirsty, like the um, they're they're like the, the the much more menacing version of a goblin, right? You get the you get like for example in Tarkir, you get some black orcs, and um, which you don't really do with goblins that often. And um, yeah, I mean, th- th- that's where I kind of see the, l- the line drawn. Like, they're like aggressive and bloodthirsty and not very comical, while a lot of goblins are just, you know, naturally a little bit goofier. Not to say that we can't subvert those roles and do things in both ways, but um, th- that's what I-, I would expect.
0: Well, th- okay, so this is along the line of the subverting the roles. We talked about Goblin Goon, but we did get asked why are there no goblins with a graded CMC than Lord of the Pit? Because we haven't made them yet. <laughs> Simple enough. Okay. What's a goblin's favorite sandwich?
2: Sorry, I cut out for that question. Can you say it again?
0: What is a goblin's favorite sandwich?
2: A fist sandwich?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I went with grilled goat and cheese on rocks. (laughs) And finally, what is squeeze toy?
2: It's squeeze toy. It's, it's just a tautological question. Uh, what is it? You know, it's part of the Weatherlight. Um, it's a legacy thing. It's important. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's great.
0: It's also an amazing pun.
2: Yes, it, I mean, it is an amazing pun. Yeah, that, that one's lasted for a long time. I and mean, many people still don't get that one, actually, which is pretty wild.
0: Yes. Well, Gavin, we want to thank you for taking the, the time to spend with us today, kind of talking, to you. pretty rambling and raging, which is an appropriate conversation for goblins.
2: Yeah, well, I'm so glad to have been on. Thank you for having me, and I hope all you goblin lovers um, are, are satiated by the amount of goblin news here. And uh, don't worry, we've got some cool goblins coming out in the future. I feel pretty comfortable saying that, so stay tuned. But re- remember, better representation of goblins and magic. That's what we're looking for. Um, all right, we'll, we'll get you those, uh, those classy goblins.
0: Thank you. Classy, smart, legendary. We, that's all we want. And that's our show for today. You can find the host on Twitter. HobbsQ can be found at HobbsQ, and Alex Newman can be found at Mel underscore Chronicler. Send any questions, comments, thoughts, hopes, and dreams to at GoblinLorePod on Twitter, or email us at GoblinLorePodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support your friendly neighborhood gobsled, the cast can be found at Patreon.com slash GoblinLorePod. Opening and closing music by Vinder who can be found on Twitter at Vinder or online at Vindergotten.bandcamp.com. Logo art by Steven Raphael, who can be found on Twitter at Steve raphael. Goblin Lore is proud to be presented by Hipsters of the Coast as part of their growing Vorthos content, as well as magic content of all kinds. Check them out on Twitter at HipstersMTG, or online at HipstersOfTheCoast.com. Thank you all for listening, and remember, goblins like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers.